0: we're going to talk about God is in control. God is in control. Uh, Sometimes in life it feels like um, everything's out of control. It feels like you have zero control and nothing's working the way it should. It seems like in life the sickness is actually in control. It seems like the economy is in control or your boss is in control and if he or she likes you, you'll get promoted. If he or she doesn't like you, you won't get promoted. That's not true at all. God is in control. God's in control of everything in the solar system. He's in control of every detail of what's going on in your life. Here's another The President of the United States is not even in control. If God wanted him to die today, he would die today. If God wanted to take his breath, he'd take his breath from him. Ultimately, God is in control. Now, if you want him to actually be in control of your life, we have to give him control because we have a free will. And so the goal for the next 25 minutes is for you to get to a point in life where you can say, yes, I believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. I believe He died on the cross for me. I believe He rose again from the dead. I trust Him with my life so much so that I trust Him with my worries. I trust Him with my doubts. I trust Him with the things that cause me to lose peace. I trust Him with the lack of money. I trust Him with the lack of health. I trust Him when everything's going good and I trust Him when everything's going bad. At one point in Job's life, uh, one of his friends came and reminded him of this in Job 25 verse 2. It says, um, God is in in control and everything in the cosmos works and fits into his plan. The sickness is not in control. The president is not in control. Your boss is not in control. Ultimately, God is in control. Uh, At one point, uh, Jesus told his disciples to get in this small boat. And when they did, all of a sudden this storm came and they were scared to death and they didn't know what was going to happen and anxiety took over. And in Mark 4, 39, Jesus told the storm, Peace, be still, and the storm ceased. Here's what I want you to see. God's in control of your storm. He's in control of your storm. You think, no way, there's no way he can be in control. All these things are happening on this side. I have family strife going on here. My critics are talking bad about me. I don't have enough money. Surely God's not in control of the storm. God's in control of the storm. The goal is to put your trust in the one who's in control. At one point, Pharaoh and Moses, after several debates, finally Pharaoh decided to let the people go free. They were so excited. 430 years in slavery. Now they are free and they're on the way to the promised land. And God told Moses in Exodus 14:4, Hey, Moses, by the way, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And he and his army are going to chase after you. God's in control of your enemies. God's in control of your enemies. There's no way God, 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 surely God doesn't want me to have an enemy. Maybe he does. I don't know why. But he's in control of them. Uh, they, they chase them to the Red Sea. And you know the story of the Red Sea parts. They go across on dry land. The Egyptians come and they drown right before the eyes of all the Israelites. The Israelites watch their enemy die. Maybe God wanted them to sleep better at night. Maybe God didn't want them worrying the rest of their life. Is tonight the night Pharaoh's going to come? Should we have children? Should we have grandchildren? Are they going to go back in slavery? Is Pharaoh still alive? And so God calls the enemy to chase after them, and he ended the enemy right before their life. Here's the point I want you to see. There's a lot of things in life that we want. We have to learn how to surrender the things we want and believe that God knows what's best. I mean, you go buy a lottery ticket and you say, well, you know, if God loves me and if I tithe, then shouldn't he want me to win the lottery? Well, let me ask you this. If you win in the lottery meant that you were going to buy your teenager a really nice car and then they were going to wreck it and kill somebody else and possibly themselves, would you want the lottery? Would you want to win it if you knew that was going to happen? Of course you would not. Here's the point. God sees the big picture. He sees everything that's going on. Uh, We're going to celebrate communion today. And over here, whenever we get communion after service, I put a bunch of puzzle pieces on the table. And I want everybody to take a puzzle piece. And here's why. In life, I feel like it's a thousand-piece puzzle. There was a time in my teenage years where I I went through a phase of doing these puzzles because I thought it would make me smarter, and it didn't work. But for like three months, I got like all these 5,000, 10,000-piece puzzles, and I would time myself and see how fast I could do it. And every single puzzle I put together, there was always one piece that didn't seem to fit anywhere. I mean, I would try to force it in somewhere and make it fit, and it wouldn't. And then I would think, if you're prideful like I was, I would think, well, the manufacturer messed up. It's not my fault. They messed up somehow. They, they duplicated a piece, or there's another puzzle they were making at the same time, and they put somehow it got in the box, and I'd get so frustrated. And so I'd start working on the rest of the puzzle, and sure enough, when I got to the end of the puzzle that one piece that didn't fit anywhere, all of a sudden, lo and behold, I would find exactly where that piece of the puzzle went the whole time. In life, whenever negative things happen, we have to look at it like this puzzle piece and say, you know what, we can't say, well, because I went through a divorce, my life is bad. Because I, I, I lost my job, it ruined everything. My 401k, I'm not going to have a retirement. Because somebody got sick, now I'm going to be discouraged. The rest of my, We can't look at that one piece and say, well, nothing's good in life. Life stinks. It's all my, God's out of control. God's lost control. Not, God's lost control of my life. And not only that, but the sun's going to the, the burn up the earth. The earth's going to fall off its axis. God fell off of his throne. He's no longer in charge of everything in the cosmos. We have to look at that puzzle and say, my life is not yet finished. Romans 8.28 says all things work together for good that, for them that love the Lord. The key phrase there is together. Your life hasn't all been put together yet. So when negative things happen, you have to say, you know what? That's a puzzle piece. I don't see where it fits right now. But one day, one day, somehow I'm going to look back and see how it all fit together together. Because I put my trust in God. I'm going to see how that piece came together and then it made this piece come together. And now, at the end of your life, you can look back and say, yep, all things work together for good. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in me will continue until it is fully complete. Here's the thing I'm trying to tell you. Your puzzle's not complete yet. In the times in life where we feel like God's lost control are the times where we have a puzzle piece that just doesn't seem to fit anywhere. It doesn't match our dreams. It doesn't match our hopes. It doesn't match our wants. And I want you today to be able to take this puzzle piece home with you. And and spiritually speaking, I want you to be able to put it on the altar. And say, I don't like that this happened. I really wanted it to turn out different. I thought it was going to be like this. But God, I'm going to trust you with this puzzle piece of my life. Because I want you to be in control of what's going on. We can take control back. We can try to do it our way and you can spend the rest of your life fighting and trying to make it fit. Or you can give it to God and knowing that God at the end of it will all put it together until it's fully complete. Um, I read a story that really blessed me the other day about uh, this lady. She, um, her, her, her father was an old, old guy. He had lived a full life. And he had a heart problem, so he was going to have surgery. And they didn't expect any complications, but there were complications, and he passed away on the operating table. And she was so distraught, so she immediately went to the airport to get a flight to be with her family. She's sitting in the airport, and she's sobbing her eyes out, looking at pictures of her dad on her phone, just reminiscing. And all of a sudden, somebody touched her on the shoulder and said, Ma'am, are you okay? And she looked up, and it was Kevin Costner, uh, the famous actor. And so he, uh, she told him the story of how her father just died. She's trying to get a plane on, and he comforted her for over an hour. They sat there and talked for an hour. Finally, they called her plane, and Kevin told her, he said, listen, in a few months from now, I'm going to be back in this city filming a movie. I'd love for you to stop by and just tell me how you are, just see how things are. So she agreed, and a few months went by, and she'd forgotten all about the movie and everything, and she was driving through traffic one day in her city, running errands, And it was so much traffic, she was shocked, like, what's going on? She looked over, and they were filming a movie. It was Kevin's. She pulled in, and she went to the security guard and said, Tell Kevin, the lady who was sobbing her eyes out in the airport is here to say hey. He went and got her. He was so kind to her. He sat her right next to one of his best friends, who was the executive producer of that movie they were filming. The executive producer put the headphones on her and let her hear the, the lines they were acting out and showed her the TV monitors, and they talked for hours. After they were done filming that day, the executive producer and this lady went out to dinner together. That night, she called her mom on the phone and said, Mom, tonight I met the man that I'm going to marry. One year later, they got married, and to this day they're living happily ever after. And here's my point. Who would have thought sitting in an airport sobbing the loss of a parent God would pull out a very significant piece of her puzzle that would introduce her to somebody who she would spend the rest of her life with. Jeremiah twenty and eleven, we quoted every Sunday it says, "The plans I have for you are to bring you prosperity, peace, the future you hope for." Here's what I'm saying: the plan for your life is not finished yet. David knew this. David knew, man, I don't want man to be in control of my destiny. I want God to be in control. I want to make sure things are done properly. Yes, I'm frustrated. Yes, I'm upset. I don't like what's going on. But God, I want to give you this peace. I don't like that Ishbosheth became king. I was supposed to be king. But God, at the perfect time, you'll bring in all the pieces together in my life. When I read this scripture, I can't help but think, and you might think this is funny, but I can't help but think about the 18. I don't know if y'all watched the 18 in the 80s. I loved the 18. Remember the end of the episode? Hannibal would put that cigar in his mouth, and every episode he'd say, "I love it when a." When a plan comes together, I can picture God at the end of my life putting this big old cigar in his mouth. <laughs> or maybe not, whatever. Anyway, and he looks and he, he's uh, walking into heaven and he says, John Paul, I love it when a plan comes together. I'll say, but God, I, I messed up here and this didn't happen my way here and I didn't have money at this season in my life. And God will say, look back at your puzzle. It's complete. Not every puzzle piece was good, but when it all came together, you can see that all together... It came out good. Frustration occurs in life. When we try to control things we were never meant to control. This is very difficult for people with my personality. It's saying you got to surrender control of things you aren't supposed to be controlling. We were never meant to control our grown children. We were never meant to control our spouse. I know that your life would be so much better if your spouse were a robot... And you could program them to do what you want, when you want, and how you want it. But we were never meant to control people in our life. You were never called to control the traffic or the weather or the economy. You're not called to control. Listen, this is a big one. We were never meant to control the timing of our dreams coming to pass. That's something we need to let God be in control of. God's much better at being in control than we are. Um, there's a a story in the Bible about three Hebrew teenagers, and it's one of my favorite stories because it involves teenagers, and it's amazing to hear their their faith in God. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you're from the south, um, Meshach, Yorshach, and Abungalow. But anyway, and so, um, (laughs) that was cheesy, but it's okay. These three teenagers, they were told by the king that they needed to bow down to the golden idol. Everybody say the word idol. If you were asked today... To bow down to a golden idol, would you say yes or would you say no? Okay, let me tell you this, and this may hurt you very, very badly. It, it hurt me when God told me this. Um, there are some idols that you and I may be bowing down to and not realizing it. An idol is anything that we have to have, um, any, anything that we love more than God. An idol is something that we want more than we want the, uh, the dream giver, God. An idol can be a desire or a dream, or a want that you so desperately think about, so desperately have to have, so desperately need in order to be happy, rather than looking toward the dream giver, the desire giver, the miracle worker, who wants you to want him more than you want that thing. Anything we want more than we want God is an idol. An idol can be a person. An idol can be a thing. An idol can be money. An idol can be a miracle i got to have this healing. i got to have this healing. That's right. But you really need to have God. I mean, if you would seek God, if you would seek the dream giver, then maybe he would bring the dream to pass. So an idol can be something like that. I know it's very difficult to hear. And so the the Nebuchadnezzar, he said, listen, y'all need to bow down to this golden idol. I'm heating the furnace up seven times hotter, and I'm going to throw you in there. In Daniel 3.17, here's what the teenager said. The God we serve can give us what we want. The God we serve can do that miracle. The God we serve can bless us. The God we serve can save us from your furnace. But even if he doesn't, this is the greatest line of any teenager, I think, in all of history. Even if he doesn't, we will not worship your statue. Here's what they're saying. This is what we want more than anything in the world. But life or death We're going to say God's in control. We're going to put God in control. Here's the point I want to tell you. Anything we have to have before we will serve God wholeheartedly is something the enemy will use against you. He will torment you with this. He will make you stay awake and worry about this and think about this and have to have this to the point where you're discontent and you're frustrated and you're mad at God and you end up leaving the church and leaving the faith all because it didn't happen the way you wanted it to. I have a question for you, and it's a very, very deep and very, very biblical question. Will you have a good attitude, even if it doesn't happen your way? Will you still serve God faithfully, even if you don't get healed? Even if He doesn't open the door? Even if He doesn't bring about what it is you've been praying about for the past 20 years? Can you hear God saying today, I know you think that piece is bad, but let me tell you, i got such a good piece of puzzle in store for you, I got something better than what it is you want. Can you hear God saying, do you still want what you want even if I have something better than that? Anything we have to have before we will serve God wholeheartedly is an idol. That's the definition of an idol right here. And you know idols in God's top 10 list, you know, not to do that with idols. God had top 10 before David Letterman. The Ten Commandments. It says in there, idol. Don't worship idols. Don't worship any other gods. And so Nebuchadnezzar tied up those teenagers. Everybody say tied up. It's very important. They were bound. Everybody say bound. They were bound by ropes. Everybody say bound by ropes. They were thrown in the furnace. Now watch this. In verse 27, before you even show that scripture, go out of it. I'm going to quote what Nebuchadnezzar said. Nebuchadnezzar looked in the fiery furnace and he said this. Didn't we throw three men in there bound?" I see four men loose, and one of them looks like the very Son of God. Here's what they were saying. Watch this. In verse 27, their clothes didn't burn. Their hair wasn't seen. That means their body didn't burn. They didn't even smell like smoke. So what burned up in that fire? The only thing that burned in that furnace was the ropes that had them bound up. And in the same way, the areas of our life that we are still in control of, the areas of our life that we're thinking about more than God, wanting more than God, the areas of our life that have us bound by the enemy are the areas that the enemy will always keep us bound up. But once we get to the point where we say, God, I trust you if it happens, if it doesn't happen. God, I love you if it happens, if it doesn't happen. I serve wholeheartedly, and I I serve you as if it happened ten times better than I want it. Or if it didn't happen, I still give you everything. When you do that, I promise you, freedom will come in your life. You won't be bound by that anymore. You'll sleep better at night. You'll have more peace in your relationships. Verse 30 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and bungalow were promoted, and God blessed them. When we release control of our life to God, He has a way of bringing us out better off than we were before. Let me tell you a few stories. Um, many years ago, I was pastor in a church on Forest Brook Road, and there was maybe fifty people there. And um, we had spent maybe six or seven years saving up money, and we bought this property out in the boonies. It was out, you know, down a dirt road and another dirt road because we wanted to stop renting. We wanted to buy our own property, and so we did. And right before we bought it, I went to stand before this courtroom in Conway where I have to ask for a variance to change it from residential to, to religious purposes. They agreed, so we bought the property. We paid it down and paid it down. And we finally paid it off after three or four years. And we were ready to, every time money came in, we were going to do something. So the first thing we were going to do was tear down all the trees, you know, so people could see the property. I'd been out to this property over a hundred times, praying, envisioning, thanking God. I did the Holy Ghost You know, electric slide. I did everything, praying in tongues, everything you could think of. I was so grateful for the property and grateful God gave it to us. And so we went to go tear down the trees. And they said, well, you can't knock down the trees until you change it from residential to religious. I said, we already did that. They said, no, you don't understand. You have to renew that every year until you actually build on the property. Then it always stays religious purposes. I said, okay. So I went back to Conway just like I did three or four years before. Uh, they, there's a list of people doing things then finally they call my name and they call the church so I walk up there, they say, you're asking for a, you know, this, and I said, yes I am they said, okay, any objections? And I thought, well of, of course not, there's going to be no." I looked behind me and about 20 or 30 people all stood up at once in the whole courtroom I'd never seen these people in my life some of them had signs, some of them had paper written documents, all these things and one by one, they came behind the microphone and they told why they don't want a church out there on that property. They live in that area. They said, we don't want the noise and we don't want the traffic. Over and over, that's what they said, over and over. One by one, it was like I was in the twilight zone. I literally, after about 15 of them came behind the microphone, I literally I just began to cry my eyes out. I was in such fear and such shame that I had led the church and these people into doing all this. And we made videos and we believed and we were excited. And now all that work gone down the drain. I left that night after they had told us that we got denied. It'll never be a religious purpose as long as these people live there. I left there feeling like the world's biggest failure. I mean, this was it. I knew I'd already pictured myself standing up in front of everybody on Sunday morning saying, hey, all this money, all this time and energy, it's all tonight. That was on a Monday night. On a Wednesday night, I finally told the first person about what had happened. It was a friend of mine who was a leader in church. And I said, listen, I said, this is what happened. You know, this is, I mean, I've I've ruined, I'm a failure. I cannot believe this took place. What are we going to do? And he said, John Paul, you always preach about it. Just give it to God. I said, I don't want to hear my own sermon right now. I want you to tell me what I should really do about this. You got to give it to God. You got to praise and worship and all these things you preach about. And I said, you're no help. So I hung up. And so then I remember being down Forest Book Road driving, you know, 120 miles an hour. And I remember just praying and I began to sing out loud. I just said, okay, God, this is what the Bible says. I'm giving it to you. And I was praising as loud as I could. Now, when Mark or Angela praise God and sing, God delights in that. But when I praise God and sing, I believe God says, okay, so tell me what you want. Just stop. Tell me what you want. Just tell me what you want. So I said, God, I don't know what to do. I mean, I just, I just don't know what to do. Like, this is it. Everything's over. And he said, just give it to me, da-da-da. And I just I didn't really feel like, you know, anything major happened. I just... Did what I did and just kept on going. The next day, my dad called me up. I haven't talked to my dad in six, seven, maybe eight years. I hadn't spoken one word. He said, I got that property down there at Market Common. There's no roof on the building. There's no walls. It's all messed up. It appraised it, you know, a million dollars. I'll sell it to you for $500,000, but I need the money by Monday. That was a Thursday. I said, we got $2,000 in the church bank. We used all the money to pay off this other property. I went to the bank on Friday. I said, here's what's the story. We need a loan. They said, oh, you need $50,000 cash. And you need that property as the collateral if you want us to give you a loan. So I stood before these 50 people on a Sunday morning, told them the story. We need $50,000. What you want to do? In that one day, within one hour, $54,000 was given. We bought this property. We sold that other property and renovated this building with that money. And this property that we purchased for $500,000, we now owe $115,000 on it. Fully renovated property on the number one spot, I believe, in all of Myrtle Beach. It says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, God is effectually at work in you who believe. That means while you're sitting here believing, God is behind the scenes working on your behalf. Let me tell you another story. My na, my, my, my grandma, my mom's mom, she's my last grandma, my, my last grandparent alive, still alive. Uh, back in the 70s, her brother-in-law got diagnosed with cancer. The doctors told him that he had just a few days left to live. His whole entire body was eaten up with cancer. Uh, he and his wife, my nana's sister, they went back home and they called all the family members. They said, listen, we just want to tell you so-and-so's got a few days left to live. He's saying his goodbyes. He's not going to be here much longer. You know, that's it. They didn't know anything about God. They weren't Christians, but they had one of those big old family Bibles on their living room table. Remember, like Back in the 70s, it made you feel like you were holy because you had one of those big old family Bibles, you know? Big old white Bibles on there. And they had that really because my great-grandmother did believe in God and was a a very, very um, well-to-do Christian and gave them the Bible. Anyway, so they thought, well, he's about to die. We have no hope. We don't know what we're going to do. So my my nana's sister opened up the Bible took her finger and pointed on a scripture in James 5 14 it said this if you are sick call church elders to pray for you and you will be healed she thought why didn't the doctors tell me this why didn't anybody say this to me so she calls up her mom my great-grandma she says hey I read in this Bible thing you got elders at your church they need to come over and pray for my husband they came over and prayed for her husband not only did he survive that cancer he outlived his wife and died of old age twenty years later. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that is so totally amazing. Now that scripture thing doesn't work for everybody. The other day I was discouraged, and I opened up the Bible and I pointed it and said, "Bring me the foreskins of a thousand Philistines." So it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work for everybody. It just works for its... True story, though. Anyway, so let me tell you another story. Where, where am I at? I don't know where I'm at. Okay. So I got this friend. I just, I'm almost done. I got this friend named Sean, and um, he's an older, older guy, older than I am. And uh, about ten years ago, he told me this story. And um, all growing up, his best friend was his mother. He loved his mother. I mean, they were the closest. Uh, he was a mama's boy. His dad was an awful, awful father. Ran out and left him, and and his mom raised him. And his mom was the piano player in church, so he loved piano music. She was his biggest cheerleader, biggest fan. I mean, she got him through college and. Took such a care of him, and, and, and then in her old age, Sean and his wife decided to take care of Sean's mother in her old, old, old age so she wouldn't have to go to a home. And he, he was happy paying back those years to his mom that she took care of him all of his life. And it was just a beautiful relationship. And she died on the last day of April. This was maybe 10, 12 years ago. And he was so distraught. They knew she was going to die. It was old age, but it just, it just hurt his heart so bad to see his mom go. They were believers. Um, but there is something in every believer that sometimes has doubts. We see it in the Bible. There's something in every believer that sometimes wonders, is there really heaven? You know, you get closer to the end of your life or you lose a loved one and you just, God, is there really heaven? Like, is it real? Is it real? We all have that question. And a few months after she had passed away, was the, she passed away on the last day of April, a few months later, he was getting ready to go to work one day and he was just so discouraged he couldn't even go to work. He called into work stayed home and he turned on his TV in one of the rooms this is you know they have those cable channels where you can pick a certain genre of music you know and it just plays I don't know if y'all know that but he picked one of those high channels and it was a piano channel so he just had it playing in the background he cleaned the house made breakfast at one point he just got so weary emotionally he just plopped on the couch he was just asking God is heaven real I love my mom so much she was a believer she served you is she in heaven what's going on about that time, he heard a song playing on the TV in the background. He thought it was the most beautiful song he would ever heard. He walked in the other room, looked at the television screen, and the name of the song was called The Last Day of April. And it was written for someone's loved one who had passed away. Man, stuff like that, if we look back in our life, I believe with all my heart, we'll see God have done those things over and over and over and over again. That was God's way of telling my friend Sean, Sean, I'm still in control. I'm still in control. Nothing's got me by surprise. Nothing should have you worried. Just give it all to me. John 14, says, Therefore, whoever wants to be my disciple must surrender to me all that he has. That means you surrender your wants. You surrender your money. You surrender your children. You surrender your life. You surrender your relationships. One more story. Angela and Brian are some of the greatest friends we've ever had in our entire life. Especially with me, Mike, and our mayors, They're phenomenal several years ago when we met they had gone through an incredibly rough time in their marriage and it was to the point where they knew that they knew that they knew they needed to get into a church serve God because God was the only hope for getting them out of this 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 slump that they were in so they began going to different churches they came to solid rock they came once maybe twice that week they were praying God where do you want us to go to church at you know where do you want us to serve where do you want us to be At that point, they walked into their bathroom, and they saw a shampoo bottle sitting on the shelf. They took a picture of it, and they sent it to me. Do we have that picture? Please tell me we have that picture. It should be on there. It's a shampoo bottle. You don't see it anywhere on there? Please tell me it's there. Oh, my goodness. Nowhere on the whole sermon? The shampoo bottle said John Paul all the way across it, and it would have been so much better. (laughs) It is. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's for it's, it's pet shampoo. But anyway, <laughs> that's not that's not the that's not the good part. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, okay. Last story, and I'm, I'm done. Um, when I talk about you can put you can put John. Let's see, put John fourteen thirty three back up there. Whoever wants me. Now, I'm not saying that we surrender our dreams and desires. That we still have those. I'm saying we surrender the desire to have it done our way right away. We don't serve the Burger King. We serve the King of Kings. You don't have it your way right away with God. You trust God with your puzzle piece. Uh, a question, just to answer this real quick, and I'll let you go. But how do you, know you're, how do you know God's not in control? In other words, how do you know that you haven't given God control? How do you know that you have not surrendered it? Here's how you know. If you're discontent, you haven't surrendered it. If you don't have peace, if you have a lack of it, you haven't surrendered it. If if you're frustrated, if you're so full of anxiety about it, you have not surrendered it to God. Last story. Um, Abraham, in the Old Testament, he prayed and he hoped and he dreamed and he wanted so bad to have a child. That's all he wanted, a child with his wife, Sarah. After 20 years, everybody say 20 years. Now some of us can't last 20 days. But after 20 years of staying filled with faith, God finally gave him Isaac. It was the greatest dream ever. He loved Isaac more than anything in the world. In Genesis 22, verse 2, God told Abraham, Take your only son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice to me. This hurts very, very much. Here's why God was saying, Take the thing that you wanted more than anything in the world and lay it on the altar and give it to me. Sometimes God will ask us to surrender control of the things we want the most in order to show Him that He's the most important in our life. Our attitude should be, God, this is what I want. I want it more than anything in the world. But I'm going to trust that you'll do it in your time, your way. Abraham prepared the altar. He had it all ready to put his, he put his son up there on the altar. He had the knife in his hand about to go down. And in verse 12, God stopped him and said, Do not lay your hand on the boy, for now I know that you truly love me. When God saw Abraham was willing to surrender that thing he loved the most, God gave it back to him, and much, much more after that. So today, during communion, today is a time where we're going to surrender things to God. Surrender that 130 pound body you've been so frustrated with not having for the past 20 years. Surrender that boss that you cannot stand. And you're thinking, God, why don't you open up another door for me? Surrender that wayward child that you don't seem to... Like, you, you tried everything you can try in the whole world and they're just not doing right. They're running off. They're on drugs. Surrender, surrender that perfect mares that you want so bad. To show everybody you got the perfect mares like you see on Facebook. These fake people with their fake pictures. You want to be like them. It's not real. Surrender it to God. Surrender the problems, surrender the frustrations. Here's my last question. What do you want more? God's plan or your plan? That's my question. Um, we're about to go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll go into communion. And before we do, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you, whenever you do bow your heads in a second, I'm going to ask you very, very boldly to respond to me on whether or not God is in control of your life on whether or not you are officially 100% a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you have surrendered everything to Him. Life is much better when He's in control.